Turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. It's part three of Forward by Faith because of God's faithfulness. And uh, really, as you look more and more into God's faithfulness, we could go into part, you know, eight, nine, ten. We could spend a whole series on that. But as we're working our way through the book of Nehemiah, uh, this is a, a powerful reminder of God's faithfulness. As Ezra and the Levites, they're, they're recording and they're, they're reliving and reviewing God's faithfulness as shown to the nation of Israel uh, through their history. So Nehemiah chapter 9. And one thing that I, I think is key that uh, we see in this passage is the, the involvement of Jesus Christ, so God the Son and the Holy Spirit, God the, Holy, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament. I think of it kind of like this. When I was in junior high, I uh, went to a, a small Christian school and uh, played basketball. Uh, basically, the rule was if you could breathe and if you could, you know, walk, then you were on the sports team because they needed every individual uh, to play, whatever sport it was. Football, uh, you know, 11-man football, instead of having 40 guys on the team, I think we normally had like 18 or 19, and you played both ways. Basketball, the same thing. If you could, you know, at least run and do something, you were on the team. So 7th, 8th, and ninth grade uh, played uh, basketball, and for that age group, I was you know, already about five, eight and a half, almost five, nine. I was kind of fully grown to, you know, I wouldn't grow anymore. Uh, my best friend at the time, Eric Champion, was the same height. So we played, uh, we played down low, if you can imagine that, uh, me on a basketball court down low. But at five, nine, I, I stopped. So at ninth grade, I quit growing. Eric kept growing, uh, so much so that he was six, six by the time he graduated from college. Uh, so he continued to grow up, and I'd say, hey, Eric, how you doing up there? But in 10th grade, when I played on the varsity team, I, that's a strong statement. I, I really didn't play a whole lot on the varsity team. I was on the varsity team, but what happened was, because I was shorter, I, I'd just come onto the varsity team from JV, I didn't get a whole lot of playing time. But I knew that if we began to win uh, pretty significantly, that in the fourth quarter, there was a good chance that I would be put in along with a couple other guys uh, on the bench. And so we were ready. I mean, I, I'd, you know, I'd stretch out. I'd kind of, you know, get my arms warm. And I'd be kind of looking at coach and, you know, kept, you know, look up at the clock and look down at him again. And he knew we wanted to get in. We wanted to play. So if we were winning by a lot, whether it was, you know, six minutes in the, in the last quarter that I got to play or maybe 60 seconds, I played with everything I had. I mean, I gave it all, all my might because I wanted to, Show coach, I can do this. I can play on the varsity team. Sometimes we think of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in a similar way in reference to the Old Testament. We think of God Jehovah, God the Father, very active in the Old Testament. God the Son, Jesus Christ, well, not, not so much. Maybe he comes into the fourth quarter, kind of all the way through the Old Testament. We don't really see a whole lot, or at least sometimes we think, we don't see a whole lot of involvement of Jesus Christ. And then in the fourth quarter, he comes to earth and he lives for 30 years. And then the last three years of his public ministry, he dies on the cross and then is buried and is risen again. Uh, and so he, he kind of comes in the fourth quarter and comes in strong. The Holy Spirit, the same way. We sometimes think, well, not a, not a huge involvement in the Old Testament. Maybe not even through the Gospels. But then when Acts hits, you know, the early church and 
uh, the day of Pentecost, man, man, the Holy Spirit is in. He's coming in the fourth quarter, maybe even in overtime, if you want to carry through the, the illustration. But I want to see in Nehemiah chapter 9 that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit were very active all throughout the Old Testament. And it shouldn't surprise us because it's God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's start off with God's faithfulness in the wilderness. We've already seen how God was faithful as creator. Uh, God's faithful with, with Abraham, his faithfulness during the Exodus on Mount Sinai. And now we come to this point in Israel's history. This covers kind of Numbers 9 through 19. That's 10 chapters. We certainly won't read that this morning. But to give you some context, Nehemiah chapter 9 covers Numbers 9 through 19 in the Old Testament. Start with me in Nehemiah 9 and verse 19 and the latter part of verse 19. God's faithfulness in the wilderness, we see that God continued to lead the Israelites. He led them even though they questioned his intentions. Notice with me again. In verse 19, the last part, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Now, I gave you a little bit of a teaser last Sunday. It is extremely interesting in the New Testament, some more background that we learn about the cloud and the pillar of fire. But I want to start off with Moses wrote about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. If you are not so sure about that, look with me at John 5 and verse 46. Jesus Christ says so himself. John 5 and verse 46 of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John chapter 5 and verse 46, it says, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. What? What? Moses, yeah, Moses wrote about Jesus Christ. We see the the gospel thread from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. That's one reason why we've chosen uh, the gospel project as the curriculum for our children's ministries to be able to see how Christ is active throughout the whole Bible and throughout all of our history. Not only that, look within Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 And we see a brief commentary on the life of Moses, of why he chose to do some of the things that he chose to do. So Hebrews 11, towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Notice verse 26. He considered the reproach of who greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt? Of Christ. Now, we see through the New Testament that those in the Old Testament didn't understand all that we do about Jesus Christ and the mystery of the church and and all this. And so it's really cool that we can see some of the commentary. Some of you who are at least as old as I am and older may remember Paul Harvey, right? The rest of the story. So we see here a little bit, we, we kind of come to the Old Testament and we see glimpses, but then in the New Testament, we see some commentary that gives us more background information, gives us more of the rest of the story. And Moses, we see here, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking 
to the reward. We look back at the work of Christ. We also look forward to his coming. Moses was looking forward to his first coming. Although he didn't understand everything about that, Christ certainly was very active. Now in Exodus 14, 19, look with me at Exodus 14, 19, we read about an interesting angel of the Lord. Now you, you may remember that angel, uh, the, the, the root meaning of that is messenger, messenger. So the angel or messenger of God uh, is very interesting in Exodus 14, 19. It says, then the angel or messenger of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So Israel is coming out of Egypt. Uh, God has done the miraculous ten plagues, the ten miracles, has finally you know, softened Pharaoh's heart to the point that uh, he was at least, I think, desperate to, okay, Israel, you know, get out of here. But then even after all that, he changed his mind. It's like, okay, they're, they're out, but let's go after them again. And so that's where we, we find them, and this cloud comes between those of Egypt that are rushing behind the Israelites and Israel who have been redeemed or have been rescued from the land. So let's pick up again. Exodus 14, 20. Coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now, Exodus 23, so a few chapters ahead, if you'd go there, either on your phones or in your, in your uh, Bibles, Exodus 23 and verse 20, it says, Behold, I send an angel, messenger, before you that I have prepared. Now, notice what some, th- some descriptions about this angel that are, that are interesting. Pay careful attention to him. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression. Those aren't normal descriptions of angels in the Bible. Normally we don't see angels being talked about as being able to not pardon or pardon somebody's transgressions. And then it goes on. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I have a pretty good hunch, as well as some other people who studied scripture, that this was probably, this angel, this messenger of God, was probably Jesus Christ himself. Now, we can clear this up for sure when we get to heaven. Say, hey, I, can, is this, was this you, Jesus? And, and, and we'll see, you know, for sure if it was. But I think it was. Because he's the one that has the power to to forgive or not forgive sins. Certainly he is the visible image of the invisible God. His name, God's name is in him because he's part of God, the Trinity, God triune. But notice also, not only Moses writing about Christ in the Old Testament, Paul called Christ the spiritual rock that followed Israel. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul called Christ the spiritual rock that followed Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. I believe the reference is to God leading them by cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And all passed through the sea. 
I think that's a reference to the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, I want to pause here just for a second. Remember, the, the, the word for baptize is to immerse. So, I don't believe this is saying that, that the Old Testament Israelites were baptized in the name of Moses. But I think this is a reference that God is using Moses as the primary leader. God called Moses for a specific task. The Holy Spirit used him as well, along with his brother Aaron, to lead Israel out of Egypt. So the people of Israel were immersed, in a way, in Moses. Just as we, in the New Testament, we often hear and read throughout the New Testament that we are in Christ. So we see here it says that they are baptized, they are immersed in Moses, and it also says, and in the sea. Now, I don't think, again, that this is meaning that they were all baptized in the name of Moses in the Red Sea, because remember, they went across the Red Sea on what kind of ground? Dry ground. So we we need to understand the context here uh, so we can get the the full meaning. And then it goes on in verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. I believe this is a reference to manna. Manna was physical food. I mean, you ate it and you could get full. But it was spiritual in the sense that it was miraculous. There was no Aldi to run down and get something from or a donut shop to pick donuts up on the way here. This was spiritual because it was miraculous food. And then right after that, it says they drank the same spiritual drink. I believe it was water that God prepared and provided for them. But it was miraculous in the sense that they were in a desert. Again, they couldn't go up to the drink machine, you know, at Zaxby's and and choose what kind of drink they wanted. And, oh, yeah, I think I'll have some water. No, this was a miraculous thing that God was providing for them. But notice then what Paul says after that. So verse 4 again, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who? Wow! I love that! Because Christ isn't just coming out in the fourth quarter, you know, New Testament. Okay, here's my time to shine. All throughout the Old Testament, all through the chosen people, you know, nation of Israel, all throughout their history, Jesus Christ was also very active as part of the triune God. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then jump to verse 9. We must not put who to the test? Christ, as some of them did. So Paul, again, is referencing back to the Old Testament. And so he's saying, listen, they put Christ to the test, and we should not do that. Again, we see Christ's involvement as very evident in the Old Testament. So Paul called Christ a spiritual rock. Jude references Christ. Go almost to the end of the New Testament, Jude uh, five. So Jude Revelation, so almost to the end of the New Testament, and Jude referred to Christ as the one who led Israel out of Egypt and the one who judged the unbelieving Israelites. Jude five says, "Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe." Okay, so you may say, Pastor David, okay, that's kind of neat. You know, it's interesting. Those are some, some tidbits of information. Why is that important to us? Well, it is super important because if the nation of Israel, and if we can trace God's activity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit's activity 
all the way back in the Old Testament through now and even see prophecy of, his, of their involvement, of God triune involvement in the future, we can trust him now and for eternity. We see several promises of this in the New Testament. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. Is that easy to do? Be, just be honest. Is that easy to keep our life free from the love of money? It's not. Money is, is helpful. But keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promise of Christ. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then notice verse 8 of Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I'd like you to repeat that phrase with me. All right, I'm going to count to three, and we're just going to say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You got it? Here we go. All right, one, two, three. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's do it one more time. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we look back in the Old Testament, this isn't just a boring history lesson. One of our kids is not enjoying history a whole lot right now because sometimes the thought is, why do I need to know this? This is already in the past. This is a reminder of who God is and why we can trust him today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. John 14, we see a promise in John 14, verses 1 through 3, and then also verse 6. John chapter 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you remember the passage in the Old Testament that we just read a few minutes ago where God says, hey, I've prepared this messenger, I've prepared this angel to go before you, to, to show you the way. And then Jesus Christ says, hey, I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We can trust God. You know, God continued to lead them even though they questioned his intentions. But God also continued with them to communicate with them even though they often weren't ready to listen. God continued to communicate with them even though they often weren't ready to listen. How many of you have had some experience, whether it was with grandchildren or children's ministry at church or a preschool, school setting, you've had some experience with dealing with younger children? Did you raise your hand? So most of us. See if you maybe have said or, or can identify with any of these phrases as we try our best to teach children. How many times have I said this to you? If I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times. Now, I mean, have we ever really said it a thousand times? I mean, sometimes I, yeah, I think I have. <laughs> but you, so we, if I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times. And then sometimes in a moment of desperation, we say, is anyone listening? 
But yet, if we're faithful parents and faithful children's workers and faithful teachers, we're going to continue to communicate. We're going to continue to teach. And God did the same thing with the people of Israel. Look with me in Numbers chapter, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 20. And here's where we see the Holy Spirit, who sometimes we think in the Old Testament, well, yeah, he had maybe some kind of specific moments where, you know, the Holy Spirit's uh, role was very evident. But here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're reminded that his involvement was so much greater than we often think. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, in the first part of that verse says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. I'd like you to keep something in Nehemiah 9 if you have your Bible or if your phone, and then just go to Numbers 11, if you would, Numbers 11 and verse 16. We see the Holy Spirit's role in the communication of truth. God continued to communicate with them even though they weren't ready to listen, and He's using His Spirit to do so, to communicate truth. Nehemiah 9 makes that very clear. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And then we see in numbers in the life and ministry of Moses how important the role of the Holy Spirit was in communicating truth. Numbers 11 and verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and notice, I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God says, hey Moses, appoint 70 men. This isn't something you need to do alone. And I'm going to use my spirit in these men to also bear the burden, to communicate truth, to help govern and lead the people that I've called you to. And through the rest of that passage, verses 23 through 30, we see how God uses the Holy Spirit in a phenomenal way with Moses, but also with the 70 elders of Israel. The Holy Spirit's role in communication of truth, and we also see the Holy Spirit's role in regeneration. Holy Spirit's role in regeneration. I want to look at a very familiar passage in John chapter 3, but maybe pick out a phrase that you may not have thought a whole lot about. Look with me in John 3 and verse 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and verse 3 says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then notice verse, jump to verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And notice how Jesus answers. Jesus answered in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Jesus giving indication that, listen, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Israel. You're supposed to know the Old Testament. You're supposed to be someone who who is very knowledgeable about the Old Testament. And and I'm talking about being born again of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, and yet you don't 
understand these things, indicating that certainly throughout the Old Testament we see the Holy Spirit working. If you may wonder, look with me in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 through 29. So Ezekiel, Daniel, kind of give you an idea of where it is in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 and then starting in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Then notice verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. We see the Holy Spirit's role in regeneration now and even in the Old Testament. You even think about Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith, sometimes we call it. And it goes through a list of Old Testament saints and by faith Moses did this, by faith, by faith. Well, who helps us to exercise faith? The Holy Spirit. So again, we see the Holy Spirit is not, he didn't just come in overtime, you know, after the Gospels, the day of Pentecost, wow, he's here. No, he's been evident, he's been active all throughout the history of man and obviously even in the eternity past. Why is is he relevant now? The Holy Spirit's relevance to us. He leads us to truth. Jesus promised in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our true identity. Remember Nehemiah chapter 9? It says that he he sent the Spirit to, to communicate them, to lead them into truth. The Holy Spirit reminds us, reminded Israel and us of our identity. I'm reminded of some friends of ours in Brazil. Uh, Marcela was, is her name. And we first met them when their uh, son, Vinicius, was pretty young. And I don't know how it came up, but on one occasion, Marcela says, Yeah, you know what I do when Vinicius goes on field trips? Just in case he gets separated from the rest of the kids. Before he goes to school that day, before he puts his shirt on, I take a marker and I write on his skin his name, and a phone number. That way, if Anisius gets separated, all he has to do is just kind of lift up his shirt and goes, this is who I am and this is who I belong to. Not, you know, not a, I guess not a bad idea. Now, hopefully she doesn't still do that. I think Vinicius is about 18. He's a lot taller than I am now. So I doubt, I doubt Vinicius would let his mom do that now. He's like, no, you, I'm okay, mom. But she wanted to remind him, hey, You belong to us. Don't let anybody else take you. And the Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through directing people like Moses and leaders, even the judges that we see are political and spiritual leaders. We're even studying this through the 30 days of understanding the Bible. Through all of these ways, God is using the Holy Spirit to remind Israel, and he uses the Spirit to remind us, you belong to me. Israel was God's chosen nation. We are God's chosen people, not because we're special, but because God has redeemed us by grace and through mercy. Think with me of Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I don't wake up every morning with this feeling of, oh, God is my Abba, Father. But the Holy Spirit within me reminds me, even when you don't feel like that, David, you belong to me. Because of my son, Jesus Christ, and my spirit reminds you. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our true identity, but also we see that the Holy Spirit leads us away from living for worldly desires. Also in Galatians, we see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So through the Old Testament, God uses the Holy Spirit to, to warn his people oftentimes. Listen, don't do this. Don't walk in this path. Be restored to relationship with me. And he does the same today. The Holy Spirit reminds us, and he who dwells within us as we sin, whether it's by omission or commission, the Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. He says, listen, that's not the way to walk. It may seem right to you, Proverbs says, but it leads to destruction. Don't go that way, David. The Holy Spirit's work in our life. Then notice also the Holy Spirit frees us from just living an empty life of religious duty. An empty life of religious duty. Galatians 5 and verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Wow. Amen. Man, that's good because religious duty, you know, for a while we can do it. And we can, just, we can just kind of abide and do the task and mark off the boxes. But eventually, I guarantee it, eventually you will get tired. And eventually, if you're just living for Christ out of religious duty, there's going to come a moment where you say, it's not, it's not worth it. I can't do this anymore. And the Holy Spirit's saying, you don't have to. You don't need to live by religious duty. You need to live being led by me, by the Holy Spirit, and enjoy and experience the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love, and leads all into the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. That is the way to live. This is the relationship I want for you. I don't want just a religious, dutiful person. The Holy Spirit does that in our life. He wanted the nation of Israel. He led the nation of Israel to not just do the sacrifices and do these things just out of duty, but he wanted God used his spirit to remind his people, listen, this is God Jehovah. This is God who says, you want to know who sent you? Just say, I am sent you. This is a personal God. This is a God who has chosen you and wants a relationship with you, not just a God who requires duties. And last, we see in this section here, God continued to provide for them even though they doubted his power. Back in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. That's an easy phrase to read and I read it pretty fast, but if you think about that for a moment, 40 years in the wilderness... But they lack nothing. And then even specifically it says their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. There were no good wills along the way to, you know, kind of pick up a new change of clothes. 
There weren't any Targets. There weren't any Walmarts to go to. God provided for them in a miraculous way. I think it was just yesterday, Kim said, you know, the friend of ours on Facebook put that Target, I, I never knew this, but Target has a program where you're, what's the brand called, Jack? Cat and Jack. The Cat and Jack clothing brand that you can buy the Cat and Jack clothing brand and within a year, they will buy back those clothes from you regardless of whether they're ripped, torn, stained, or whatever. So your kids can wear them for a year and then you go back after the school year, turn them back in, they give you credit and you can buy new clothes again. This friend tried it and it worked. I have no idea why Target would ever institute a program like that. It doesn't make any business sense to me. But Target wasn't back in the Old Testament. They weren't turning their clothes in every year. God was, God was providing for them even though they doubted his power. All the miraculous signs, and yet again and again, they would come to a moment of of testing and go, oh, has God brought us out here to kill us and to kill our kids and to make us, you know, uh, uh, just die of, of thirst and of famine? Who else is like that sometimes? I am. God provides, and he does things, and he does things, and sometimes I'll come to a moment of testing, and I'll go, God, where are you? How are you working? God continues to provide, even though sometimes I doubt his power. Thank God for his faithfulness. And then lastly, we see God's faithfulness in the conquest of the promised land. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to make a great nation of his descendants. Notice with me in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. Now, with that in mind, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. And I want to read a little bit of how that actually happened. Exodus chapter 1, and verses 1 through 7. These are the names, Exodus 1, 1, of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob... Were how many people? Woo! 70. That's not a big group. 70 people? Great nation! Wow. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. I'd say so. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Notice the last phrase. So that the land was filled with them. Seventy people, and God, through, through the time that they were in Egypt, was growing this nation, making them stronger, preparing them for some of the tasks that they would have ahead of them, and he greatly multiplied. He fulfilled his promise to make a great nation, so much so that some estimate there may have been upwards to two million people coming out of Exodus from 70. God is faithful to his promises. God also fulfilled his promise to Abraham to give Canaan to his descendants. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 23, the latter part of verse 23 says, And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. 
So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. Quick side note, this is not what we may think of as the crusades of just going in and conquering. God was punishing these nations for their wickedness, even to the extent some of these nations were sacrificing their own children to their false gods, and God was using his own people to punish these nations by sending them in and giving Canaan to the nation of Israel. So God is not this unjust, you know, just massacring people. No, it was a punishment for their wickedness and even sacrificing their own children to false gods. But he gave Abraham or gave Canaan to the descendants just as he had promised Abraham 600 plus years prior. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me to wait. And as God gives promises, sometimes I, I, I'd like to see him sooner than later. And even when they got to the point of, of entering, 38 years prior, remember 12 spies were sent in and 10 came back and said, no, you, you, you don't want to try this. And two came back and says, yeah, God's given it to us. Joshua and Caleb, yeah, let's go. So it was delayed even 38 years longer, but God fulfilled his promise and gave Canaan to the descendants of Abraham. Then we see God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to bless him and his descendants. Notice with Nehemiah 9 and verse 25. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. Think with me for a moment about that. They took possession of houses full of all good things. My imagination kind of runs wild, so I'm thinking there's already sweet tea made in the fridge. There's toaster strudels in the freezer. Uh, there's a bluebell ice cream, you know, a chocolate chip cookie. Dough. All these good things. We continue on cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Now, I want to remind you that in Genesis 12, and I'll read it quickly, this was God's promise to Abraham, but again, this was almost 700 years prior when God said to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, who, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God fulfilled his promise. We see God's faithfulness in judgment. Notice with me in Nehemiah chapter 9. In verse 26, and this covers a period of the judges or the political leaders and spiritual leaders all the way to the Assyrian deportation. So Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 26. Nevertheless, so all this has just happened. Israel should have been at the peak. You know, God has given us this land and it's a, it's a turnkey land that we can just kind of move into and it's, it's ready the, 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 the cisterns are there, and the orchards are there, and the houses are already built, and the cities are fortified even. It's, it's already ready. But then the very next passage, the very next verse is, nevertheless, and what we're going to see is man's 
fickleness. How man, God's faithful, but we see man is oftentimes, mankind is very fickle, is very unfaithful. And we also see that external circumstances aren't enough to keep our heart directed toward God. External circumstances aren't enough to keep our heart directed towards God. And that's why we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Verse 28 says they had rest, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. In verse 29, the latter part, it says they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, the middle part, it says they would not give ear. So even though God had blessed them in a phenomenal way, as time goes by, it's not enough to keep their heart directed towards God. I think there's some important lessons for us to be reminded of in light of that. Social justice without Jesus Christ will never lead to a lasting solution. Better education, and we, we stand right here in the middle of a school building in a gym where students come and we value education, but I'm going to tell you, better education without Jesus Christ will never bring a lasting solution. We prayed for two retreats at the beginning of the service this morning, but even the conferences, the books, the special things that we have in Christi- as, as Christians, those things are not adequate substitutions for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to go back and remind ourselves that Jesus is the most important, and we must pursue growing our relationship with him. After all, the Garden of Eden was perfect. Adam and Eve were told, hey, you can, you've got all of this, and it's perfect. But yet they still rebelled against God. This passage reminds us that, boy, they've, they've witnessed spectacular miracles. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been given the promised land, cities that are, that are already ready. All of these things, houses full of good things, vineyards, they didn't even have to plant the fruit trees. They were already there. It should have been the peak of Israel's spiritual relationship with God where they said, this is our God who did it. But yet as time passed, began to take those things for granted and began to even worship the false gods that some of the unconquered people around them were still worshiping. Even in the end, consider the the thousand-year millennial rule. You know, we're in election season and oftentimes we're forced to choose between candidates that aren't often all that great because they're humans like we are. Sometimes there's empty promises. Many times in the end we look back and go, well, they promised this, this, and this, and well, it didn't happen. Either side, both parties, same, many, many times similar things. But yet Jesus Christ in the millennial rule, he is the perfect ruler. But yet at the end of the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign, it says that there will still be some who will rise up in rebellion against Jesus Christ. Why? Because external circumstances aren't enough to keep our heart directed toward God. 
man's fickleness. Sometimes we think, you know, if only God would bless me a little bit more, if only God would give me that vehicle that I need, if only God would give me that mate, you know, that that life mate that I want, if only God would give me a better job, if only God would help me in my health situation, then I wouldn't struggle so much with sin. Well, I'm not sure that those external circumstances are really going to make a huge difference because we've seen throughout the history of mankind that even when things are phenomenally blessed by God, our heart, if we're not in tune with Christ and pursuing Him, our heart can deceive us again and again and again. Why? Because of man's fickleness. But we see that God was faithful. He sent prophets. Nehemiah 9 verse 26, it says, prophets who warn them in order to turn them back to you. God disciplined them to show them their need for God. Notice verse 27 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. So he disciplined them. We are reminded in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines those whom he loves. God showed them mercy many, many times. Notice verse 28. Or let's even look at the latter part of verse 27. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. I think he's referring to the judges there who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, verse 28, the latter part, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. We see it in verse 29. God warned his people once again through spirit-filled prophets. Nehemiah 9, 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. So God sent spirit-filled prophets and says, listen, this is the way of life. This is really the way that you, you should be going because this is what God has designed for you to live in all of his beauty, in all of his, his glory. This is the route. This is the path. God's faithfulness. We also see that God preserved a faithful group within the nation of Israel even to this day. Notice Nehemiah 9 verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Throughout all of that, God preserved some who were faithful to him and still looked at him and still understood that God is Jehovah as they look forward to the coming Messiah. And even to this day, as we see the nation of Israel that in large part... Many, many Jews are still waiting and still looking for the Messiah. Some are are, are completely secular nowadays and don't even care about that. But yet we see that there's Messianic Jews who understand Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And God has preserved within the nation of Israel to this day still people who are faithful to him. What does that mean to us? What affects our future greatly? Because we see that If God did that for them, he can do the same for us. Spiritual opposition will increase. Spiritual opposition will increase. Peter talks about Satan as being a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
Ephesians 6 talks about going against the schemes of the devil, wrestling against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. Spiritual opposition will increase, but yet spiritual devotion to God is still worth it. When you doubt, you know, is it, is it worth the effort? Is it worth not being part of maybe the popular group? Is it worth not getting the promotion at work because I'm not willing to do these certain things that kind of skim the rules and, and distort things? Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. It's worth it because we can even look at around us and, and see those who have been duped by the lies of Satan and where that leads them. What a powerful reminder as I looked at the news recently. On September 4th, earlier this, mer- this month, Bed Bath & Beyond's CFO, Gustavo Arnal, he jumped to his death from his luxury apartment in Manhattan shortly after Bed Bath & Beyond announced that they would be closing many, many stores and have layoffs. And he jumped to his death from his luxury apartment in Manhattan. Why? Because he didn't understand his purpose for life. But yet, if we can get it and we can understand, yes, there's going to be opposition, it's not always going to be easy, but spiritual devotion to God is worth it every time. Then lastly, we have the promise that spirit-led believers in churches will be preserved by God. Spirit-led believers in churches will be preserved by God. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. John says in 1 John, listen, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Matthew 16, 18 says, Listen, on this rock, what Peter had just declared that Jesus Christ was who they should trust in. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I will be with you always until the end of the age. This has been a challenge to me as we receive this magazine, The Voice of Martyrs, and I often read through the stories. And all through the pages, I was able to read of Men and women and adults and sometimes even whole church families who have experienced great persecution, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, but like last month. But yet God is still preserving people for his name in some of the darkest places in the world today. And God can do the same for us. Would you bow your head, close your eyes as we finish this morning?